Welcome back to Season 1, Episode 5 of the Living for Today podcast, where we will explore the boundaries between reality and spirituality. I'll be your host, Ryan Kurzak. In today's episode, I'm speaking with Vincent DePaola, a clinical Ayurvedic practitioner and fellow yogi, about how living through death can transform our spirit. Both Vincent and I have lost probably the most significant people that we've known to date in our lives in these past few years. And it's my hope through this discussion that we're able to find some ways of healing as we move through this loss and grief. So welcome, Vincent, to this podcast. I'm glad that you were able to uh, tune in today and uh, talk to to myself and our audience. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me, Ryan. I really appreciate the invitation. Yeah, no problem. I mean, we've known each other for uh, at least a few years now, right? Because, you know, I met you through studying astrology, if I remember correctly. Correct. Yeah, it's five years now, over five years. Yeah. Um, And the the reason, as you know, because we talked about this earlier, why I wanted to speak with you on this podcast is because um, you also have had, um, you know, experiences of losing very important people in your life. And one of the things that we had discussed, which we'll get into, is the idea of how to move through grief, how to understand loss, how to relate that to uh, having a, a healthy appreciation for life. And one of the strengths that you have is that you come from uh, an, an Ayurvedic background, which might be a little different than what a lot of people are know about or are used to. So we'll get into some of these topics that we discussed, but if you wouldn't mind, um, what could you tell people what your, where, where are you coming from? You know, when we talk about having an Ayurvedic point of view, an Ayurvedic background, what does that mean? What are you up to? What are you about? It's really a good question. Uh, well, I guess we could start with, uh, as you and I had discussed earlier, my time in India, uh, as a yasi, as a, as a monk, a yogic monk, uh, I came across Ayurveda and began to understand it in the context of its being the oldest healing system known known to man. Right. It's a very ancient healing system. And the word Ayurveda, as with all Sanskrit words, carries really the, the most focused concept of what the science is about in that ayur means life and veda like all the vedas we read means knowledge or study so it's the study of life and in that one concept i think it explains itself very fully in that the ancient rishis had nothing but observation at their disposal so they put together all of these wonderful Vedic sciences like Jyotish and like yoga and like Ayurveda, which is the healing arm of those three sisters. Right. Being one sister, Jyotish being another sister and Ayurveda being the third sister. And Ayurveda, yoga keeps you in balance and keeps you healthy. When you go out of balance, it's Ayurveda that comes in and fixes it. That's, that's really the role it plays. So as the study of life, as the knowledge of life, it brings in an understanding of nature, what's natural. And right. so it's a living medicine. Unlike, um, and all the ancient systems were the same as this. Uh, even Chinese medicine is very much the same, traditional Chinese medicine. It's a living 
medicine. It's a living understanding of what we're going through in our present environment and how the effects of cycles um, produce different imbalances or balances, depending on how we handle it, in our body. Right. It's, it's, again, unlike maybe the Western approach to medicine, which is certainly an outstanding asset to have and, and um, very much in need for a lot of things that are going on today, but they, they tend more to treat um, a disease or a specific ailment. And, and in that way, it isolates it a bit. Whereas Ayurveda, or as I said, any of the traditional sciences, they take a holistic approach in that it understands what cycle of life we're in. And by cycles, I mean, really, um, Ayurveda is, like Jyotish, also very tied into the understanding of time. And you can't talk about Ayurveda without talking about time, because right. all life is cyclical. Um, the seasons are one example of cyclical life. Even life itself starts out um, in three, in one cycle and goes through the three basic doshas, the kapha, pitta, and vata dosha. And I can explain those more if you'd like, but just to say that the first part of life from birth through puberty is the kapha part of life. It's, it's the beginning, it's the preparation for life. Mm -hmm. And then once um, puberty starts and goes to about the age of 50 is when the pitta period of the or cycle of life comes in, where you're really outputting a great deal of energy and trying to make a living and, and get your life going and learning and understanding and producing income, raising families. It's all very hectic. And that's right. the part of life. And then at the age of 50, right about where menopause and for the male menopause, as I call it, <laughs> comes through. Then uh, you enter the vata time of life. So pitta's activity, vata is where that activity starts to become reflective, and you, you, it's more the, the time of life where you're. In India, they would turn to spirituality at that time of life. Uh, here in the states, we turn and start to think of retirement and those sort of things. So. Kappa being the beginning is very lush and very, it's mucus, right? It's very soothing and young people are full of energy and liquids. And then there's the fire time where you're putting out a lot of energy. And then vata comes in and vata starts to dry and, and diminishes um, the life part in preparation for your moving on. Right. Next stage of life. Right, and that's you know, that whole idea. This leads into the why I wanted to talk to you. Um, again, as as we've discussed, you know, there are these cycles that happen, and uh, being someone who's been involved in Ayurveda and has taught um, at an Ayurvedic program, I teach the Jyotish or the astrology portion of that in Asheville. What I've noticed over the years, and I suffered from this myself, was this idea that there is this kind of cycle, which is, as you described, you know, uh, early childhood, then adulthood, and then moving into one's uh, authority or, or elder years. And it's always treated as though it is something that runs on this like lengthy cycle, you know, upwards of 100 years or so. And um, these cycles happen throughout all of nature. You know, there's life, there is the activity, there is death. And what I really wanted to, to touch upon 
to help people see that or, or try to explore how is it that life and death are interrelated in a healthy way. And again, my impetus was coming from you know, losing Melissa at the age of 42 when we thought we had another 40 years to go. Um, but she had a very profound healing process through that. And when I talk to people who are interested in Ayurveda and alternative medicine, there's always this idea that uh, an individual might have failed or an individual maybe didn't do something right if a disease does come about before they get into, uh, you know, their, their Vata time period or, or beyond 50 and so on. So, you know, for you, who's had a lot of life experience and I, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to, not going to throw out your age, but you've, you've been around a few more decades than I have. And the reason I like to specify that, cause I, I did that in an earlier podcast with uh, minister Jim Norton is because in my mind, people who've lived quite a long time, longer than me, uh, and so on, they've probably got some experience. They've seen death, they've seen life, they've seen birth, they've seen activity. So there's a, a bit of a, a better uh, context to it all. And so for you, someone who's lived a very rich life and is still doing so and has been involved in Ayurveda and healthcare and has also lost many people in life, how do we tie all this together such that we can see life um, as this, this dance between birth and death and, and even see death that as a transition into something greater. How does Ayurveda approach that? Well, wow, that's, um, that's really a profound question. And um, thank you very much for giving me the chance to address it. I uh, first want to say, uh, and I hope I say this in the best way possible, that anyone who conceives of death as being the at fault because of, of something that someone had done wrong is really incorrect about right. that. In, in yoga, we know in Tantra, I'm, the yoga that I study is Tantra, and that's what I was doing in India, Tantra yoga. We understand that everyone is, has their time of death has been destined before we, come, we came here. We, they count life in yoga as number of breaths you're allowed in this lifetime. Mm. accomplish what you have to accomplish so someone dying younger or it's no way a mistake right part of their journey yes so to get to your question about how ayurveda views death um we go back to time and i guess it's been time has been a fascination of mine forever <laughs> i both know that um we're musicians so in music time is everything <laughs> right time is at the essence and so as a young drummer 12 years old 13 years old time began to mean a great deal to me uh, and then coming to yoga and to ayurveda this understanding of the cycles of life that you and i have just uh, covered a bit um, really came to the forefront so just as in the time of day because everything in nature has a logic and that logic carries across through all of nature. Mm -hmm. So we can look at one day and understand an entire life. In, in one day, you have the cycles of, again, kappa is always the beginning. So the very early hours of the morning. So, um, yeah, so Caesar built a clock 
they told me in school, I don't believe it, but <laughs> <laughs> it was there before. But Caesar put his hours of the day, but prior to that, at the time Ayurveda was founded, the great rishis of old looked at time is in relationship to the movement of the earth. Right. Watch the sun and the moon go across the planets. So the day is divided between morning and night. There are three periods, again, kapha, pitta, and vata in the morning. So the first third from when the sun in relation to the earth starts its journey back up, that first third of that journey is the kapha time of day. Mm -hmm. So it's, you're preparing yourself, you're resting, you're still asleep, um, maybe two in the morning we're talking about that, something like that happening, uh, if you want a clock reference, but really it's totally dependent on location of the earth and what's going on physically. That first third is the cup of time where you're preparing for your day. And then the second third is the pitta time that um, goes where you're actually producing and putting out a lot of energy and a lot of fire. And those, that's the time that food comes in. And then you enter that kappa, the last third of the 12-hour cycle of that day. We'll call it 12 hours. Um, cycle of that day, which is the vata time. And that becomes night. And you're preparing for night. And then the nighttime starts. And that's also divided into the same three-thirds, kappa, pitta, vata. Right. In that period, you inevitably your body starts to shut down. In fact, physiologically, your digestive system and your agni, your fire, that you're assimilating not only food, but you're assimilating through light coming in, what you're doing and what you're processing as experience in the course of the day comes into you. And then the cup of time comes and um, that last third of the day, you should have had all of your meals, all of your food in that daytime, at night, because that's the time that your metabolism is high. When night cut comes in, that second 12 hours, your body turns over to the immune system. It hands itself over to cleaning itself out, to right. the lymphatic system taking over. So, and slowly you sleep. And when you go to sleep, it's like you drift We'll talk a lot about consciousness, I think, over the next hour. But your consciousness drifts into another state of consciousness. And in that state of consciousness, it is, in a sense, the death of the day. Right. The death of your day. So it's a natural going away. It's a natural sleeping. And no one really knows or can express it anyway, that state of mind that happens in the night. But... We, all we do know and hope for is that the cup of the day will start and you'll prepare and get up again the next day. So right. the cycle of life is exactly the same. Right. We're in our daytime now, and when it's time to go to sleep for us, when, when death comes, it's identical. You're, you leave this conditioned mind, um, your conditioned consciousness, and you drift off into a state of death. And again, no one can emphatically tell you what that's like because it can't be experienced by the conditioned mind that we use in this um, in this single lifetime. Right. To it, and that mind is built to fulfill that condition. The the 
completion of your karma, the samskara, right? The karma is the actions and the reactions, and the samskara is the reactions of those actions. So those samskara have to be taken care of in this lifetime. What, what's, what, which of those karmas have ripened? So in that nighttime now, we're resting, and the immune system of, of whatever death is, whatever pitta parts, uh, kapha, pitta, vata parts are going to happen. They happen until you come back into the next lifetime. So right. continuous flow. And a lot of people um, are a lot of thought. Let's say a lot of thought. Try to break that into um, definite sections. And that's that's not the way it is. I was thinking about how to explain this to you. And as a musician... I've, I think I found a way. Okay, good. <laughs> hear it. Think of a think of a fretless guitar. Yes, because you play guitar beautifully, right. and the fretless guitar has um, its string tensioned across that string. Um, if if you would think of a guitar normally, you would think of it in frets: the first fret, the second fret. That is what like it's like to try to section these thoughts off of the particular stages of life or death or day or night. But rather, if you take the frets away, then that string can be a continuous flow, right? The sound on that string, if you press your finger down and slide, it can be right. a continuous flow without, without the hard break between one fret and another fret or one tone and another tone. So too is consciousness. Consciousness, we all possess all consciousness. So in going from life to death, it's like that same string. It's seamless. You don't really know exactly where you are without the frets, but you harmonize. <laughs> right. Right? right? Yeah, you yeah. harmonize with that state you're in presently. There you are, perfectly, yeah. <laughs> perfectly done. So um, no one can pick out a note in there, yet all notes between the start and the finish are there. Right. So just because I happen to have an instrument here with me, you're saying instead of going, it's more like, it's more, it's more like a slide. Exactly. Right. And uh, I always credit you, even in, in my astrology classes with you, the way you can bring it down like you just did to, <laughs> to a very unique solid way of understanding it but yes yes it's like that because consciousness just flows it just flows and you mentioned to me earlier you started your day in meditation as i do each morning so um that segues naturally i you try to bring that forward and flow through the day you don't you don't leave your meditation behind and say okay that stopped and now i'm going forward to breakfast <laughs> right right <laughs> you know what I, mean? yeah. I, I try to flow through the day um i try to meditate a couple of times a day um to get from one point to another point and then pick it up again and go on and, and let that flow right i don't so, know if i got off track there and i missed no you know, I mean, that brings up a lot i mean that, that brings up a, a lot of things and i know when we had initially started talking one of the other things we mentioned talking about was um uh, you know what i had heard and learned from uh, like peter fenwick and the idea of dying well so i, I want to get to that but before we do based on what you've just said I, I just wanted to make that comment so i i don't forget to go back to that um from what you have said 
uh, there's this idea of the cycle and there's this idea of how life shifts and how life changes. And it's not just simply one point to the next. There, there is a flow to it. And, you know, going, going back to the original idea, the reason I wanted to speak to this is because again, when I talk to a lot of people who are interested in health and well-being and these sorts of things, there is this idea that if illness or disease or even death arises, that, that, that really something has gone wrong or there is a problem. And when I, you know, teach, uh, like for example, astrology for Ayurveda and these sorts of things, they're very, most of the people are younger, they're in their early 20s. And I remember being that age. And um, there's almost this sense of, for example, Ayurveda can cure everything or natural health things can cure everything, even things like, you know, illness, disease and death. And, you know, as we've discussed, myself and, and even Melissa, you know, we, we practiced Ayurveda, she was a vegetarian, she had regular treatments with Ayurveda, but yet still at a young age, she passed. And one of my uh, healing teacher mentors one time told me, he said, look, if you really want to help someone, you have to not care one way or the other if they get well or if they get worse or if they live or if they die. He said, because the moment you start getting caught up in this definition of well-being and this definition of what is good and what is not, you, you, you start to develop attachments and then maybe part of their path is to help them uh, pass well or to simply help them manage an illness because that is part of an experience they need to have. And this again opens up into a much broader thing because for example, you know, on one hand, um, as Melissa was, was not doing so well and she was eventually passing, there was a great sense of loss and a great sense of grief, mind boggling so much. So, but there was so much healing going on for her, like the, the way that she treated her relationships. She, she cleared up all kinds of difficult baggage with, with just friends and family. She let go of a lot of attachments to things that were holding her back. She expressed things that were important to her that she did not feel she was able to. So even though the physical body was going through a difficult thing, because of that illness, because of that difficulty, it, it, it gave an opportunity for healing on a, on a more profound level. So uh, basically what I would like to hear from you, I know I keep throwing out these like multiple point questions at you, but what I would like to see what your thoughts are, are number one, since you've probably seen a lot of uh, younger individuals also learning Ayurveda, you know, how would you explain to them that while, while well-being and health is important, that also disease and illness and even death have an important role? Um, and, and let's just stop there because then we can take it more into the, the Peter Fenwick work of, of, of dying well and how a person can actually be fully healed in the most important way, um, even though their body may expire. And again, as I used in a previous podcast, C.S. Lewis, he had a wonderful uh, uh, term. He, he called it, you know, when someone becomes unbodied, you know, when they, when they leave the body. But to back up, when you're thinking about communicating with people who are full of idealism, are full of this whole idea that, you know, health and well-being is available to everybody at every point in time, and that things like natural medicine, Ayurveda can always make that happen. How do you think about that? How do you approach that? How would you express uh, just thoughts around that? Oh, I, um, the question know, makes sense, right? Oh, it makes perfect sense. It makes okay. perfect sense. And I'm trying to, 
to frame it before I explain it. Okay. And, and I'd like to frame it, I think, again, in the concept of Ayurveda, understanding a holistic approach, an entire approach. So to see illness as anything other than the opposite side of health would be incorrect, right? Because they're, they're opposite ends of the same spectrum. Every healing um, is a result of an illness. You need to come out of something. So without that illness, there would be no healing. There would be no forward movement. Every illness to me is a blessing. It's a lesson that has come, right? Right. We'll, we'll probably get around to guru sooner or later and, and what that actually means. But when someone is ill, like take the, take the, um, the way shamans were picked or identified really in primitive cultures was that that person would get deathly sick, Ryan. They would, they would, they would be in coma for months and they would, and everyone would understand that they were undergoing a spiritual experience because it was testing their attachment to the body. It right. gave them a chance to examine why am I attached to this? Why am I um, trying to live my life solely in this body? You need illness to let you know that there's something beyond because your mind through that illness will go beyond it. Right. And therefore I always look at, Oh, and again, to separate it into healthy body is the, is some kind of um, trophy or uh, achievement that you've had is really a very distorted approach <laughs> right. to healing. Because, um, again, we, are, we want to look at the whole picture. You're not just your body. You're, all illness comes from the encompassing of three of your beings. That means your body your mind, manus in, in Sanskrit, and then also your spiritual self. Mm -hmm. You have all three. And illness is problems within one of those top two phases, right? The spirituality or the mind. It comes down um, into the body. And then the body experiences illness. It's a result of what's going on in the mind. And if the body didn't alert us that there was something wrong in the mind, then we may not work on it, right? right. Like um, you want to, let's take cancer, for instance. Cancer, I always look at as, okay, there's, a, there's something deeply hidden into the body because physiologically, we, you can always draw these, these parallels. Physiologically, when we all have cancer inside, but um, the cancer, the body, it will form a outer membrane around the, around the cancer itself and try to contain it within that. Mm -hmm. And often that's great. The immune system has it under control. You can go on your way. But that cancer may be the result and is always the result really of something in the mind that's being held, maybe being carried from past experiences. Mm -hmm. So it goes into that. It starts to fester. It starts to manifest. We, we call the three stages RMV, relocation, manifestation, and then diversification. So it diversifies, it spreads, right? It relocates and it starts to spread. And that's telling you something you need to explore. It's calling your attention to it. So instead of looking at it 
as an enemy, the most successful people embrace it and try to get the lesson from that disease. All disease is that. It's a lesson of what's um, of something that you're holding in your mind and you need to release because without that, you won't achieve the spiritual evolution that you really came in this lifetime to do. But what, what you know, I, that makes, I understand what you're saying. And what I want to draw back to for a moment is you know, the way that, you know, for example, because Melissa had cancer, she had leukemia. Uh, and one of the things, we, we looked at it that way from the beginning as though the idea being that, well, if we do figure out what are those lessons or what are those things that need to be dealt with in the mind or, or on the spiritual level, then she will get well. And so that's, that's what we were thinking while she was going through the treatments. And so that's why she hit it so hard in regards to really working through a lot of the stuff that she might not necessarily have done so in, in intensively. But then as she got towards the end of her life, um, you know, partially because I had sort of been not had any sleep for a year and a half and partially because of the difficulty of, um, <clears throat> her passing, <clears throat> there was a lot of, uh, uh, sort of confusion about, well, how could that be? How could, how could we go through all of that sort of internal healing just for the body to die? But then from her perspective, because she was sort of in between, I think at that point in time, she, she, she felt um, healed. Like she, she described it as being completely healed. And again, I've said this before, how she kept over and over saying things like she wouldn't take back a minute. So the reason I'm bringing this up to you is because, you know, before, before the completion of this whole phase in my own life with Melissa, like what you said, I would take and I would say, yes, I get it. That makes sense. But now, um, you know, it's trying to sort of bring congruence to the idea that, oh, well, I, I really truly trust and feel that, yes, she was completely healed totally. But a lot of people, you know, again, who, are, who haven't gone through maybe experiences like this or have like an idealistic view of things like natural healing might say, well, shouldn't her body have gotten better? And th this is why I have a little bit of difficulty with some of the, the more popular authors and um, teachers, like, for example, Anita Morjani, even though I, I love her work and Melissa really took heart the things that she said, but, you know, in, in her life experience, she had lymphoma and, a, and a, a leukemia that was going to basically kill her. She went through the death process, but then she says she learned these things. And so then she came back as though she came back because she learned these things. And, and I think that sets the stage for uh, a lot of difficulty in understanding, well, wait a minute, obviously, you know, the, the, for example, in Melissa's case, if she had actually done all that healing, then her body should have gotten better. Do you see the difficulty that I'm trying to express here. I do, but understand it this way. We are not, we as individuals are not isolated. We're not an island. Our existence here is strongly interwoven with the people we are here with and the environment we're here with and the society that, as a whole that we deal with. To say that... Uh, going through the death process 
necessarily means that your body comes out the other end correctly is is really quite a fallacy right because she came here to experience and fulfill her samskara as we said earlier but that samskara is deeply tied into you mm. We have to understand that we're viewing life from our perspective, the way we see other people experience disease or the way we see people going through emotional trials and, and tribulations. Th that when she fulfilled this, her karma might have been gone, but it very well might have been that for your growth and your well-being, you needed to undergo this level of, of great stress. And right. I'm so sorry you went through it. And, and maybe that was part of your uh, arrangement with Melissa. Right. And so, so you have explained to me, if I may. Sure. I hope you don't mind. Um, I share this in, this in this podcast that you have been undergoing from what you've described in our conversations, a very spiritual experience, a, a, a complete um, dismemberment. The best way I can say it, say it uh, you've been completely, has item after item taken away from you. Right. Right? It's like a spiritual cleansing. That's part, a very special part of a journey that not everyone gets to go through. Um, if you've ever read St. John's book, The Dark Night of the Soul. No, I haven't. He talks about this in a very deep way. You really should. Okay. And, uh, if you can, Stanislav Golf, um, Dr. Stanislav Golf is a, a very great hero of mine in that he writes about spiritual emergencies mm -hmm. and how people go through this dark night of the soul. Um, in the tarot, it's the tower, card number 16, where everything breaks down around them. And they need to totally experience that. And the things that break down are the things that we have attachments to. Right. The things that really hold us uh, from yet making real spiritual progress in this life. So often disease, um, the parts of our lives that get taken away from us, are experiences that we need to have in order for us to open up and take that, and, and I'll explain what I mean by open up in just a second, but take that step in life that says, okay, I have to make more progress. I have to reach out and expand, expand my environment, expand myself to reach more. Because what is a death? A death is a a huge loss. It's a vata. We said vata experience, right? Vata is air and space. So when you lose someone, when you lose anything, uh, there's a big emptiness inside of you that comes, a vast cavern. And the only reason why life would make an openness and expanse like that is so you can fill it with something else. Right. Okay. And so it gives you the opportunity to put more of your growth, more of yourself into that space that was um, in, in another time was 
occupying you, occupying your time, occupying um, so much of what your, where your focus was, where your consciousness was kept, right? So right. it opens up this big hole. And, and what we wind up having to do is we have to, which really falls under the realm of Vedic, um, Vedic sort of counseling, um, we, we have to heal we have to give someone a chance to heal. So I was just coming in and saying to someone, as people have done to you apparently, um, <laughs> you know that um, it's okay, you can move on. You, no, what we need to do for someone who's experienced that level of loss is, is recognize what they're going through and be there as a partner to them, be there as a as a resource to them but do not try to move them because they're not ready to move right there's too much distance between themselves and everything around them there's that all that space that's there they need to go through it and these are life experiences of course um as you know i lost my mother a year ago this may and she was 105 Oh, wow. <laughs> I, I, I say that so everyone can understand, well, 105, you know, you should expect that she got, but still, I feel that loss. You know, May 1st was, uh, she timed it perfectly, was the yeah. anniversary of her, her passing. So I also, in this, oddly, as you and I spoke, there's a lot of propinquity uh, between what we experience. I also had to deal with... Um, uh, the anniversary of her passing as well. well it's interesting that, you know, you, you, the way you describe that, because you know, being a limited ego point of view, like for example, uh, when I think about people hearing about people passing in, you know, their seventies or their eighties or nineties or hundreds. And I, I hear people being upset about it. Like my first response, at least at this point in time is, well, gee, don't be greedy. <laughs> and that's, <laughs> And that's, that's, you know, obviously because Melissa went a little younger, but what you're describing is that, I mean, it makes sense uh, that loss is loss is loss. And whether it happens at uh, when someone is older or whether it happens when someone is younger, and I'm sure there are plenty of children who have passed as well, that their parents would say things like, you know, well, gee, you know, she made it to 42 that I would have given anything for that. So the whole idea of loss and grief, it's, it's universal. And in this situation, like time isn't necessarily age, isn't necessarily the defining characteristic behind how it affects a person. Exactly. As we said, it's in relationship to the people around you. Right. Well, how do you, because I've thought about this a lot too, because as you mentioned, the, the idea of inner transformation that I feel I've been experiencing uh, someone recently in the uh, Kriya yoga online, um, uh, apprenticeship group, the two-year meditation course that I teach, um, they asked me about surrender because they were going through a lot of difficulties taking care of uh, a partner who has a very debilitating illness and it's long-term and an elderly mother. And she kept asking me about surrender. And I, I tried to explain that what I know about surrender now I could not have learned without going through this experience. And so if, if, if Ryan at this age tried to go back 10 years and explain to Ryan 10 years younger, okay, you need to get this under your belt now. That way you can handle it when it actually happens. I don't think I, I don't think younger Ryan would understand what I would be saying right now. So I'm curious, do you, have you thought, or do you feel that there's any 
any way that you could explain to people who maybe have not gone through difficulties yet or who are currently going through difficulties uh, such as loss or places where they need to surrender. Have you ever thought of any or seen any helpful way to explain it such that you can actually get it without having going through something? Does this make sense? It does. I, I understand your question. That First, I think, thing to understand, Ayurveda very much tells us that each experience, no matter how identically they seem to be occurring externally, they're unique to the individual. Mm, right. No one shares the same experience. Right. To try to explain to them or prepare them for what this is like is, is difficult because you need to know their particular experiences and you, you need to have shared a lot of time. People you're close to, close friends of yours, you know how to work with, you know how basically to adjust to them, but to broadly offer advice is difficult. However, I, I would say we do have a lot of um, stories and examples that have come through time. You and I covered one. I think this is a good point in time to put it there. The, the story of the, uh, the Buddha. Oh, right. Yes. The story comes to us. And I, I think that's a very beautiful indication of this, where one woman who had just given birth, her, her infant child had passed, had died uh, in the night. And she was totally heartbroken, running through the streets with the child in her arms, came to the Buddha and said, you have to help me. Here is my baby, just one day old, and, it, and it's dead. And you have, you have to help me. I, I need you to bring my baby back to life. I can't bear this. It's not fair, such a young child. And the Buddha told her, okay, I will do this for you. He said, but you do one thing first. You go out and you find me one household that has not experienced loss. Just one household. You bring them back to me and I will uh, fulfill your wish. And so she goes running out, of course, and knocks on every door. And, and naturally, every door she goes to has experienced the loss. In, in China, there's a phrase that goes, Jia Jia Yopanamian, the Jin means every house has a Bible. <laughs> um, every house has a holy book because for, the, for those times. And after she went through the whole village, it can find no one. She came back to the Buddha and sat by his side and she became his very first nun, a very <laughs> uh, uh, female monk. So um, again, there is loss everywhere. The, the greatest thing I think or the greatest gift you can understand if you remember the story of Yama when he sat by the the river when all his brothers had been um, when he took the life of all the brothers of the, the Pandavas the four Pandavas and Judas Deer comes there and finds all his brothers dead and laying by the river because they drank from the water um, he the river he asked the river who was Yama his father actually um, can you bring my brothers back? You have to give me my brothers back. He said, first I will ask you questions. And he, he asked Judas Deer, who was considered the wisest man of all who has ever lived in the Pandavas. He asked him um, a number of questions. And the greatest question I found in the Mahabharata, which is where this story comes from, was when he asked him, what is the greatest mystery uh, of all mankind? And Judas Deer wisely 
asked him. Oh, that was the other stipulation. He had to answer the questions correctly. Mm -hmm. so, so he said, the greatest understanding, the, the greatest mystery about man is they see death going on all around them. And yet they think, I will never experience it. Right. Right? Yeah. So um, I think the greatest gift you can give anyone is to get them to understand that it is a natural part of life. It's mm -hmm. just like going to sleep and waking up again. And there's nothing to fear in it. Nothing to fear. When my mother passed, I was, um, she passed, she, in the end, at 105, she needed to be in a nursing home. So I had to put her there. It broke my heart, but I just couldn't care for her anymore. Right. And so um, in the passing, I got to be with her right to the last day. She passed in the night when I wasn't there. But in that daytime, I was holding her hand, and I would watch her, Ryan, drift back and forth. She'd go across. And I'd watch, and, and she'd get kind of a smile on her face and be communicating. And then she'd come back this way um, and open her eyes and look at me to make sure I was still there. And I tell her, it's okay. It's okay. I'm here. You can go back. I'll yeah. open her hand. And she'd go back again. And she, and she did that five or six times. And I knew that she was going to pass that night. In fact, mm -hmm. she, she passed very in, early in the morning, 2.30. And my eyes opened. And at the same time, the phone rang. And then. The nursing home told me she had passed so mm -hmm. um yeah so that experience for me uh solidified a lot of what you're talking about now in that it's it is a transition and illness is a transition it's not a death sentence it's a it's a transition right from one thing to another thing and and, and by death by death sentence you're, you're meaning that it's not it may be that the body goes. So in that sense, yes, it is sort Correct. of a sentence, but it's not the end of a person's consciousness Correct. or a person's Correct. being. Yes. Yes. There's no, we all know that there's, there's energy can never be terminated. Energy will go on. So the energy of that person will go on. Well, this, this leads me, maybe we could segue into the, what we discussed about say Peter Fenwick's work and dying well and before we really go off the deep end in that regard, um, one of the things that I did in, enjoy ab about his work was how he talked about people dying well, and that one of the key features of that is when people uh, have let go of their attachments, have, you know, like they're, they're letting go of all the things that hold them back. And so, for example, regrets or guilt or things of this nature, that when those are really present, that tends to make the, the death process uh, uh, more difficult. And the reason I'm, I'm going into this is because being one who teaches meditation and, and, and Kriya Yoga, and one of the prime teachings of the whole process is this idea of letting go of attachments. And many people interpret that to mean being aloof or being um, detached. But what it means is, you know, as, as Melissa wrote in her little book, um, she quoted the Bhagavad Gita where it says, you, know, you are entitled to action only, but not the fruits of your actions. So you're, you're, you're meant to do the work that you're here to do, but what happens after that and how it, where it goes from there is not necessarily up to you. And I remember um, our meditation teacher who also recently passed um, about uh, six weeks ago, um, someone asked him one time, how can I be sure that I'll be fully spiritually awake and enlightened when I die? And keep in mind that when we're discussing this, uh, I'm not making a, 
I'm not making a distinction between someone who has an idea of going to heaven or a person who goes into enlightenment. I, I think those are just words that all speak to the same process. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. And someone asked him, well, how do I know I'm going to be fully awake and aware and, and uh, spiritually enlightened when I die? And he said, the only, the only way I know of is to be fully awake and aware before you go. <laughs> and, and I thought about that a lot and thinking about Peter Fenwick's work and this idea of letting go of attachments and the practice of yoga, but really all spirituality. Cause even if you study Christian doctrines like the new Testament, I mean, there's a, there's a good bit of, uh, you know, leave your family behind and follow me and these sorts of things. So letting go of attachment. Um, but to bring that around, I, I think that the idea of dying well ties into the idea of, um, of living well. So the more you're able to be present, again, with the idea of this podcast of living for today, the more you're able to be present and the more you're able to actually, and the way I look at it is, if, I, if I'm living my life and today I'm going to think to myself, and, and this became more clear after Melissa's passing, if someone told me I was going to die tomorrow, did I live my life today such that I would be like, okay, Sure all right, that's what we're going to do. And, and the idea of living well, if you're living well and you've done that, well, then there, there aren't attachments, like negative attachments. There aren't things holding you back because you've lived a life so well that when you're done, you're able to let go. So yeah. perfect. That perfectly said. Yeah. So with your, because I know you studied Peter Fenwick's work as well. Um, this idea of dying well. So, how, how does, how does, from your perspective, living well also equate to dying well, such that that transition, sure, it's going to be difficult because there's a, there's a change in circumstance and there's going to be grief around that. But how do we move through it such that it's not five years later and we're still just crushed by the loss? How have you found, again, I'm only a year in, so I can't, I can't speak to five years later yet, but how have you found that people are able to grieve well, but also realize like you have described that there, there really hasn't been a loss and, and a body has passed and you're not able to physically interact with this person, but consciousness itself is still there, that, that life goes on, that the reason we are still here is because we still have things to do or to be or to give. How do we live such that the dying is a natural follow-up? Well, the, the, the starting point would be to acknowledge the loss. Right. And uh, of course, it, the concept of a, attachment, we, we should at least clarify a little bit. Let, let's put a little bit of um, structure around the, the, that concept of, of becoming so attached to something that you, you just feel like when, once it's gone that, that you're incomplete in some way. In a sense, you are, because as we talked about earlier, you have that vastness, that vata vitiation, that vata, that space that was once filled with someone you loved so totally, and now it's empty. So it's a great emptiness, and you have to deal with it. So in a sense, you feel diminished. And so how do we fulfill that is really your question. How do we fill that space so that we can never forget, but at least go forward? Right. And be contributing and so that that really is predicated i think on how you make the transition mm. so 
Um, you said earlier, dying well. That's that's if you die well, that's a great way to do to make the transition. And from that, we can draw a parallel into what we should do now to make the transition happen well. And that is be in the present moment. So being in the present moment means you're here with what's here. You're not um, attached to something that's in another time and space, right? So right. you're trying to be in your present self. You know, when uh, a very simple example that maybe our listeners can identify with is, let's say you go into a grocery store. I'm making this up as I go. <clears throat> you go into a grocery store and you're, you've got one item and you want to check it out, right? This one item. But as you go up to the cash register, someone with a, a basket full of groceries cuts you off, goes mm -hmm. in front of you, and they start checking out you know, what, what looks like an infinite amount of food that you, you know, that, that they had put into the cart from doing the shopping. Right. And, and, it, and you're, you're back there. I could have been out of here. I could have gotten home. Uh, you know, I could be having dinner now and you're just waiting and you're burning up more and more and more and they're taking their time and <laughs> they're talking to the cashier, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and, and you're driving home and you're thinking about it, you know, all, oh, they, they made me so late, you know, it must have put 20 minutes on my, my journey back to the house. And, and you're, now you're cooking and, and these thoughts are still in your mind and it's going into your food and, and you're eating and it's poisoning your stomach with the same <laughs> negative thoughts. Right? They're, they're attached to that fact that they were impacted in a way that cost them. 20 minutes, the attachment of who they are and, and what their plan was, what their thoughts were, was impacted. Right. right. So the only way to get, and that's what happens on a grander scale when a relationship broke up five years ago, you know, and you're still pining, still, um, what did I say today? I'm still crushing on that person, you know. Um, uh, instead of putting yourself in the present, the, the way to prepare, the way to deal with it is to put ourselves in the present, to deal with what's going on right now. Because as long as you're out there, and that's what they mean by attachment, as long as you're outside of yourself in another point in time, spiritual progress is impossible. Your meditation's not going to help you. Your, everything that you're doing is not going to help you. By the way, just a comment on what you were saying earlier about spiritual practice um, doing spiritual practice, you should do to do spiritual practice. <laughs> it should not be, oh, I want to become enlightened, or because that's another desire, right? Or I, I expect this outcome. No, as as Melissa wrote in her book, was very wise. That was one of the wisest lines in the entire Bhagavad Gita. That is, um, not you. You just do the action. And don't be attached to the result. It's the same with our lives, I think. You just have to live your life without attachment, as we just said, and be in the present moment. That's what carries you forward. Because in the present moment, you will acquire, you'll experience, you'll learn, you'll progress, and that will fill the vata. Um, these things are easy to say, but they take work. And um, as you and I had spoken about just a few minutes ago, um, there's a great book 
that, or in a great study from Peter Fenwick that explains how we get through these things and right. uh, how to make that all a better uh, experience for us. Yeah. So what did you personally get out of Peter? Um, well, what I enjoyed about, um, well, I, I should back up a little bit here because uh, I came to Peter Fenwick's work a little later um, after Melissa had passed, uh, you know, there was an interesting experience that occurred. It was about three hours after, after she died and we were all sitting around the table and just upset. And I was very upset. And all of a sudden uh, my friends had just come over and Melissa's parents were there and I started hearing singing and I was like, that's weird. Where is that coming from? And I'd opened the windows after she had passed and I thought to myself, maybe someone's outside singing. And so I went and um, I, there was no one outside, but I kept hearing this singing. So me and another friend, uh, Jackie, we followed it and out of the nightstand beside where Melissa slept and where she passed, um, the singing was coming. And so I was like, well, that's interesting. So I opened up the drawer and this old iPod that I never knew how to use. It was probably more than 15 years old or somewhere around there had, had come on. And what was, what was being played was this song and I had never heard it before. And it was actually Melissa singing. It was her voice. She had made a voice notes recording on this iPod. Uh, I don't know, uh, in 2013, according to the file and and I was shocked because I didn't know this iPod was powered up. It, it just turned itself on. And the song, which I'd never heard her sing before, I'd heard her sing a lot of songs, but never this one, came on. And it was so perfect to the experience that we had gone through and what I was feeling and experiencing right at that moment. I mean, the lyrics were just right on. And it blew my mind and, and, and two of the people that were there, both of them were nurses and one of them wasn't very much into believing in things, spectacular, metaphysical. It had, they told me later that it had a profound impact on just sort of how they saw life because it was as if, it wasn't as if it was, it was, it was really spectacular, but that got me researching uh, near death experiences, people who passed and came back and what they reported um, it got me exploring uh, just all kinds of different things around death. And so I, I read books on these near-death experiences, but I finally made it to Peter Fenwick's work because uh, after going through a lot of YouTube videos of people who had died and came back, one of the recommendations was this TED Talk called Dying Well, and it was a, a TED Talk he had given. And so I had, I had clicked on that and watched it, and the parallels that it had to how Melissa how, how, again, I'll repeat this, how she kept saying she would never take back a minute, despite everything how it went, she kept saying that. And as she was getting nearer, she was getting happier and everything was just perfect to her. Like sitting out in the sunshine was just the most beautiful thing, even though like she could barely walk because of what, you know, the, the leukemia and the chemotherapy had done. Like even when she first got her, this little walker to move her around, she sent her brother out to get one so she could be a little bit autonomous. She was so enthused. It was almost as if everything was, was, was glowing for her. Of course, there were moments of sadness, but seeing this coming through and then watching the, the YouTube talk on Peter Fenwick and how he described that as a person lets go of attachments, they're letting go of the, their, their personality. They're letting go of everything that kind of bound them to 
this life. And when they do that, they become free. It's almost as if this little personality that I call Ryan or she called Melissa or you call Vincent is just like a small little reducing valve. And once that body is, is, is done and, and you shed that body, then you become aware of just the vastness and amazingness of life. And after she had passed, I never had any experience of her hanging around in any kind of like morbid way. Or I, I, I even, I was even like, geez, you know, you, you're just going to disappear on me like that. Like I, I kind of wanted to have some kind of communication, but, <laughs> but, but it was like she had just gone. And yeah. from that, from that point forward, there was a sense of like she, her personality, her mind, her body was really irrelevant that she was a part of something much greater. And anyway, to answer your question, what I really enjoyed about Peter Fenwick's work was how he described that part of the letting go process is also letting go of who you think you are. And the reason I fixated so much on that was because in many spiritual traditions that I am aware of, that is kind of the key, you know, letting go of your small sense of self, letting go of your own ego and letting go of this fixation on what do I want? What do I need to how should life flow through me? Even if it means I get sick and die, even if it means I have to go through a difficult situation, how can I let life flow through me such that I can be this vessel or this vehicle of this, this greater whole. So I enjoyed that talk because it seemed to tie in not only the fact that life and death um, are intimately tied together, but again, if you live like you die, because again, as I mentioned in a previous podcast, one of her 10 rules that she wrote in her little book, was she, she described or lessons was that the future is an illusion and that all we have is all we have is now and that that is the only real thing um and your example you gave about the uh the um the grocery store is wonderful but you know our anniversary had just passed and i had gone to a counseling session a day or two after that and one of the things that the counselor told me she had another example which is very similar she said Look, when you're driving a car, she's like, you look in the rearview mirror, but you don't keep looking. You can't drive a car by looking in a rearview mirror. You, you want to look in it every now and then to see what's behind you, where you've come from, but you mainly focus on what you're doing, how you're driving. She also said, you look to the horizon every now and then to see what's up ahead, but you don't overly fixate on the horizon because that creates anxiety. You, you look back, you look forward, but you, you mainly stay focused on what is happening right now and you are appropriate in that regard and so the whole idea of his work was that if you are able to live right now with who you are with with what you are doing with what is important to take care of right now that that in a sense is contributing to this idea of living well as well as dying well that's very beautiful yeah so that that's where i that's what i took how i took it (laughs) and and that was such an omen for you um, you know, Ernst is always talking about omens, and mm-hmm. uh, he's absolutely right. But the fact that you, you you had told me that story before, and I thought about the fact that she had communicated to you in that way right. through an old iPad, you know, right. <laughs> that uh, this illustrated in a very um, a very profound way that this, now now this is the past, right, and now you have to not keep your focus on the rearview mirror, but yes, be, be in the present, drive the car, you know, drive. But I want, I just wanted to say we have to honor grief. Though. Yes. 
you know, yes, yes. have to honor grief. We have to go through a period of grief in order to even begin to fill that fata that we were talking about, that great space that's in you, because there was such such a connection with that loss for you to have experienced it at that level that unless you're honoring grief and you don't honor grief by telling someone, well, it's time to move on. They'll, they'll know when to move on. They'll know right. where to go. And they may need help, you know, especially if they're a couple of prominent, you know, they're, right. they're going to need some help. The emotion's going to require that, that, that they, that they get some help and hopefully there are people around who can help them do that. But you have to let them grieve and you have to acknowledge because part of grieving is having it acknowledged by the people you love and respect and trust around you, acknowledging that for you. Right. And I'm glad you, I'm glad you, you stated that because that is something that, um, Again, from my own experience, as I first got into yoga practice and this idea of, oh, well, you're not the body, so don't worry about it. And uh, what really dies, you know, because there's these, these statements that uh, you know, death is really just the death of an ego. And so many people, I'm assuming younger people, uh, because that's how I was, get this idea that, um, you know, you, you shouldn't grieve. And, you know, I, I want to be very clear as you're stating that, you know, throughout that whole process, even though, even though right now for me, thinking about Melissa's passing, I can talk about it this way. That doesn't mean I still don't have days where I'm just crying. And, and, and during the last year, and even while she was going through that, like I, I made it a point to let that out. So I want to just piggyback on what you're saying for people who might think that you shouldn't do that. I, I, I personally, in my immediate experience, has felt that it is important that if you are crying, if you are upset, that it is important Absolutely. to honor that and let that out. I mean, I mean, I'm assuming even with your, with your, with your mother and the people you've lost. I mean, it was the same kind of thing, right? Yes, deep, deep loss. I've I've lost many spiritual brothers to uh, great monks that I had known and, and loved through the years. In their passing, I experienced great loss with it. it. Took me many days to, many days, many months, and I still think of my mother. So. So yeah, I was worried about her for um, at the time of her passing because in her last couple of months, all she wanted to do was see her mother. Right. So that was my major concern. And I had a similar experience to yours in that um, it was about a week later, a Sunday. It was the Sunday after she passed. And I had, you know, my mother was Catholic, so I honored yes. that and went through that whole experience. And during at Catholic funerals, they give you a card, um, a picture with what the Mary, the Blessed Mother, on a one card, or the Sacred Heart of Jesus on another card, or Saint Anthony carrying the baby Jesus. So I had my mother's card, which was the Blessed Mother. Um, I picked it up and I was walking around with it that Sunday morning, just missing her. Somehow it gave me comfort. I went downstairs, and there was a. I had to do something constructive. There was a pile of papers that I hadn't moved in a long time. You probably have one around your house as well. <laughs> yes. And so I, I uh, decided I'm going to put these papers away. So I had the card in my left hand, and I was leisurely putting papers away. Somehow, Ryan, I don't know how. I hadn't seen it 
my my grandmother passed when I was oh twenty years old, mm-hmm. so a lot of years ago, and um, I moved papers around and uncovered, don't know how it got there, a picture of the Blessed Mother from my grandmother's funeral. Hmm. And I picked it up and I had my mother's in the left hand and my grandmother's in the right hand. And that was her way of telling me that they were together. Right. So, you know, so omens, omens are uh, important. And that story can be interpreted a thousand ways by a thousand people. But that doesn't matter. What you experienced with Melissa in that iPod was your experience. Right. What I experienced was my experience. So we, we, in that way, get to fill that void in our own way. Do you think it's possible, again, because I, just the nature of, I mean, the reason I got into psychology and philosophy and meditation is all this is because I, I saw a world that looked like it was in a lot of pain, mainly because I think I was. Um, but, you know, thinking about these experiences, I would have, personally, I would have loved to have had some sort of warning or preparation about how to move through it with maybe a little more grace, I suppose. Um, I don't know how to, how to describe it. And I'm just wondering if, if you can think of ways or if you've thought about this, that our society might be able to somehow honor this so that ahead of time people are more tuned in because, and again, the reason I, I keep dwelling upon this is because, you know, up until this happened in my own life, this was really just, it never really occurred to me that it was even possible. You know, it wasn't, uh, never did I ever imagine that that would be something that could, that I could experience. And I think that's probably very common. So is there any way society or people can, I don't know, help with that in some way? There's many things our society misses when it comes to what we call this is another very strong Ayurvedic concept. It's ritual. Hmm. You know, the concept of ritual is very, very important because it's ways of marking that point in your life and honoring that point in your life, like the ritual of birth. You know, when uh, someone undergoes a birth, all the relatives come around and they really bring presents and, and nurture the mother, hopefully. Uh, depends on, of course, your societal uh, structure, but um, they they recognize the ritual of birth, and marriage is another good example. It's sort of an understanding that two couples have come together and are taking their position in society and going to move forward. And and this ritual of death is one that we also ignore, completely ignore, and really kind of sweep it under the carpet. And that's that's very hurtful. We and that's what I had the most struggle with. I was going to say it, but I'll, I will say it. I had, that's what I had the most struggle with, is having put my mother into a nursing home where after taking care of her for a very long time, I was unable to. Right. You know, and so that, there was that separation and the guilt surrounding that. <laughs> as, as, as much meditation as I do every day is still with me. Right. Um, but, yeah, how to prepare for it, there needs to be the concept of ritual. It's 
it's so lacking in this society, but I'm going to say to you that it's not as lacking in other societies. Right. You know, the, con the concept of saying goodbye, I've, I've had the, as a monk, I've, I've traveled through many countries and had time to live in 40 different countries over this long lifetime. But the, the, that concept of saying goodbye or someone passing um, is honored and cherished in, in many societies. We also have a terrible, I'm going to raise this out of the blue, but we, we do the same thing to many, um, many of the rituals that, that people go through in their lives. You know, the, the turning of, of age is mm -hmm. one that we don't, we don't handle, especially for women. Um, th there's so much negativity surrounding this, the stage of menopause. Right. You know, where we don't recognize, as other societies do, how important it is to have come out of that phase of life where you can honor their wisdom because at that phase, that woman has gone through all the experiences of life. Mm. And she should be acknowledged for that and should be honored for that. Right. Instead of sweeping it under the carpet, don't talk about it. You know, it, it's a lot of those things uh, we, we tend to get too sterile with. Right. We try to find a remedy for it rather than a embracing of it. Right. Um, to, to assimilate the experience is far superior than to um, shorten it, stunt it as much as possible and move on. Right. Because I think it will come back to you. I, right. I think, honestly, I say this as your friend and your brother, that uh, I think you're handling this perfectly, <laughs> passing with Melissa. I think you're really honoring it. And I... No, I refute anybody who thinks you should cut it short. <laughs> well, I'm not planning on cutting it short, but <laughs> you know, I, I appreciate the, uh, the comment. It's always, it's always interesting just to figure out, again, how do we keep driving? You know, how do we keep driving on our road while uh, making sure we're not looking in the rearview mirror too much? You know? Exactly. Um, but one, one final thought that I, I just to finish up, because I know you've got clients and I might have someone pounding on a roof here in a few minutes. Um, I think maybe after, pe after people have been around for a few decades, they can probably relate to a lot of things that we've been saying. And again, my, my thought keeps going back to people like myself when I was younger and interested in Ayurveda and yoga because I, I saw it all the time in, when I lived in Asheville, North Carolina, where everyone's interested in alternative health and living well and these sorts of things. You know, what would you say to people just coming into a profession of, of helping others, of healing others? How would you express to them, look, you know, if, if you do your best and, and people will be as healthy as they can be, because that's sort of how I look at it now, that you will, you will be as healthy as, as you possibly can be, not that you will have perfect health, but as healthy as you possibly can be, how would you express to them to work with their clients such that they're able to honor and acknowledge disease while it's there, not as a problem, but just as part of life and, and that balance between being in that state of being healthy and well versus uh, kind of going in and out of, of illness as we will all tend to do from time to time. How would you communicate that to younger people? <laughs> Well, I, I thank you for 
uh, bringing that question to me and and thinking that I might have a good answer for it. I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll try my very best. Okay. Um, uh, as you said, I have a, a, a number of decades behind me, and I was thinking back earlier this morning, oddly enough, to some time I got to spend with uh, Ramdas, Richard Albert. Do you know? Uh -huh. Yes. Who wrote Be Here Now. Yes. Uh, I, I got to spend a little time with him in Tucson, Arizona, and... Uh, and speaking with him, and he was talking about, uh, he wrote about this, actually. I'm remembering in one of his books, um, he did a television show with uh, Chogam Trumpa Rupeshe, I believe it was. Mm -hmm. uh, a, a very Tibetan, Tibetan Buddhist, very deep in his practice, very old and deep in his religion. And um, the show was about non-attachment and Ramdas said he jumped up and he said, well, would you give up the attachment to your path? And, um, and Rinpoche turned to him, he looked at him and he said, something along the lines, Ryan, he said, I am nothing but my path. Hmm. And, and that to me was the most beautiful response. Ramdas and I talked about it. It's the most beautiful response he could ever have given because he gave up all attachment. He gave up his ego to his path. He surrendered to it. Right. He became part of it. So um, in Ayurveda, we say that the people who come to us, I look at them as they were meant to be treated by me at this stage for however long, for whether I'm to help them in any way I can. And Ayurveda teaches us to meet that person where they are at. Right. Any preconception on behalf of the healer prevents the healing. So mm. thinking of the illness in any negative way will reinforce that illness. Right. Right? So they need... I, I, I'm not preaching. Uh, uh, a healer needs to surrender to their path. They need to let the path do what it can do for the person that's there, however little or however much that might be, and right. get out of the way. So for the removal of preconceptions is critically important. And that would be applicable as well to just anyone going through difficult circumstances, whether it be health or other things, because that is also, you know, as we've discussed, part of, for some reason, their particular path in this life. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And, and just to, I know a lot of people sometimes might take that as to be, well, that means I shouldn't get out of my problems. I, I don't mean that in any way. I just mean that, you know, if you do your best and then surrender to what happens from there, you know, because there's a much possibly greater intelligence or consciousness at work that our little human minds might not necessarily be able to fully comprehend. <laughs> Beautifully put. Yeah. Good. Okay. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to uh, be with me today. And, you know, as we discussed, we'll probably do a another podcast um, uh, maybe, well, we'll see when we can set it up. But I'm, again, I'm trying to space these out one month at a time. So we've got time. Uh, one thing I would say is if, if anyone listening has any follow-up questions, 
to what we've been discussing or follow-up ideas you'd like us to discuss when Vincent and I get back together again, you know, put them in the comments section and we'll take a look at those. Um, but do you have any closing thoughts or any final words you'd like to share? I know we talked about a lot, but we also talked about a lot even before we did this podcast. So. <laughs> yeah, we did. We did. We, we, um, we, we mostly, I, I think we covered a, a great deal. I, I think maybe in closing uh, to circle back around to the very beginning, the understanding of, of life and its cycles might be helpful because to understand that, that it's all a continuum. Time is changing. We, our consciousness are growing and shifting, are expanding. And being in the present is the most important thing, the most healing thing you can possibly do. Mm -hmm. And I, I think if we can leave that in the minds of our listeners that be in the present as much as you possibly can uh, and listen to your heart. Put your, don't put your focus on your brain. <laughs> it's very Western. Put it in your heart. Before you do anything, ask your heart, is this the thing to do? Is this what I'm supposed to do? And that prevents the most important thing of all. That is, you won't ever hurt anyone else. All right. As long as your mind's in your heart, you won't do harm. And if nothing else, don't do harm. Excellent. All right. Thank you very much, Vincent. I, I appreciate the time. My very great pleasure. Thank you, Ryan. Take care.